Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Mia from the future coming in before this episode to tell you that today's episode handles some heavy topics, such as eugenics and its implementation, and that if you feel uncomfortable with the topic, feel free to skip this episode. While it's an important section of medical history, we understand that hearing about one of its darkest chapters can be exhausting, and we want our listeners to be comfortable above all. With that in mind, here is today's episode. Hi, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we deal with very serious topics, uh, but also have a little fun occasionally. I'm Mia Mulder. And I'm Raluca Montano. Today we're going to talk about eugenics, a very complicated subject to discuss that has a lot of uh, deep historical roots and also awful examples in history. Mm. But also, I feel a very good example of when when science goes wrong and when well-meaning ideas go awry. But first, of course, before we start the podcast, we would like to thank a patron. This episode is dedicated to Nick Stilly. Thank you, Nick. For supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Mm-hmm. And of course we want to thank all patrons for helping us host and uh, pay for all the costs that are involved in having a podcast. Uh, thank you. And if you're interested in maybe getting a shout out, like like good old Nick did, uh, you can become a patron of, of the podcast and get access to some special goodies as well. Before we get into the podcast itself, how have you been, Mia? I've been sick. Mm. I have had the illness... The old sickness. The plague. The plague doctor has been around my house and, has, and has deemed me worthy me. of being alive. I'm the plague doctor. Oh, God. Uh, for now, I am still allowed to be alive. I have mm-hmm. not yet been burned in my home, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm very happy about. Mm-hmm. How have you been? I've been fine. Mm. Well, good for you, then. <laughs> Must be nice, huh? Uh, must be nice um, not being bedridden for a week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but I've been, I've been great. I am... Um, I'm learning Swedish right now, as you know, so I just finished a course, which is really good. I feel like my Swedish is improving, mm-hmm. so that's it's all fine and dandy. Mm-hmm. You won't hear it here on the podcast, though, because this is an English podcast. We speak English. Yeah. Anglaise. Engelska. Engelska. So. Anyway, let's get into the podcast. <laughs> so, eugenics. A lot of people who are listening to the podcast probably know a little bit about what it is. Probably heard it. Most people probably know that it's something bad. It's something very negative. But before we get into why, that's probably a correct assumption. What is eugenics? In very basic terms. Mm. Before we go into like the history of it, the origins, uh, or its implementation. Like what... In, in, in theory... What is it? Well, put simply, eugenics is the application of principles of genetics and inheritance to the improvement of the genetic landscape of the human race. Or so they fought the people who were proponents of eugenics. So historically, this has been achieved by encouraging people with, air quotes, good stock to breed. Good genes. (laughs) Good genes to breed and discouraging people with 
air quotes, inferior genes to breed. Mm -hmm. I Um, I can't see how this could go wrong in any sort of matter at all, or be influenced by things such as racism or classism. Yeah. Sounds like a perfect objective science. Mm. Yeah, because when I say discourage, what I really mean is uh, implement state-run segregation, institutionalization, and sterilization Mm. programs. We're going to get into that. But how did the idea come to exist? Mm. Well, that's a good question, because... The concept of eugenics, the concept that that we can selectively breed humans to become, quote-unquote, better humans, has existed since antiquity. Plato, ye olde Plato in ancient Greece, argued for the selective breeding of people into certain classes. Specifically, he wanted to breed people in the guardian class of people to be as good and hearty as, and smart as possible. The guardian class were the people who ruled in ancient Athens. And, in, and Plato basically argues that like we this democracy business, nah, we need to have genetic superhumans. Not genetic, he didn't say that because genetics wasn't the science then. But like he, he wanted like super well-bred stock of people. They are to be the rulers. Everyone else can like, they can go work in the fields or whatever. <laughs> but like we need... Only good leaders should breed with other good leaders, and that way we were going to get the best leaders. Mm -hmm. Sparta, so still in ancient Greece, famously killed any child that didn't live up to a Spartan ideal, which any child that was born with any form of, like, deformation or just didn't live up to the ideal was instantly killed. I figured the Spartan ideal is children being born with a full beard, complete six-pack. I mean, Sparta is very much the the bro-jock culture of ancient Greece. (laughs) Nice baby, bro. <laughs> That's a good baby. That's gonna live. And then they threw the baby as a, as a football. And because it is a Spartan elite of a baby, that, that child will bounce a few times and be perfectly fine. According to Tacitus, a Roman historian, Germanic tribes would kill members of their own society, not just children, if they were particularly unwarlike. Uh, so if you're, if you're hanging with your buddies and one of them is like, maybe we don't go to war. It's like, your, your buddies might decide, like, we... What the fuck is this? We, you can't, you, we, we, you, we can't allow you to have kids. <laughs> we need to breed warriors. And this is, again, like a, a type of eugenics, potentially. Like a, a very baseline concept of it. And, and I think it's interesting because people understood that like breeding is a thing. Because you can, like, farmers bred animals, farmers breed crops in a very specific way, right? To improve the stock. Even long before they had an understanding of what genetics was. Mm. So these ideas that you could, you know, breed humans to become better humans was always sort of around, but never really made into into big into the mainstream. Uh, but along comes a man called Charles Darwin, who had an interesting theory. Well, he didn't come up with it, but it popularized the theory of natural selection. He also noted that this is something that we as humans kind of already do to animals and crops, like a sort of artificial selection. But eugenics, the idea that we can do this to humans in order to selectively get better traits, became more formalized into a science, quote-unquote, by a cousin of Charles Darwin, Francis Galton. Galton came up with the idea that we can, we can apply this to select for good genes in humans, make humans into better stock. What if, unless... <laughs> What if we uh, breed no, no, no. good people? No, no. Unless. Unless. No, no, no. It's bad. It's bad. Unless. <laughs> Unless. Unless. 
Um, uh, but he coined this term good creation from ancient Greek. Uh, g- good birth, like ancient Greece, mm-hmm. Greece. Greek is hard to translate. And that's where we get the term eugenics. But he was very concerned about, like, because we as a society don't kill all the poor people because and we... starving <laughs> people and sick people constantly, yeah. we as humanity w- won't evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a very inhuman and evil idea, by the way. Francis Galton is, like, deep in hell right now. He was especially concerned with the decline of intelligence. Mm. So he he believed that intelligence is an inherited trait and that the upper classes were the most intelligent and accomplished people. And he he was very concerned about how less wealthy people tended to have, like, a lot of children. Mm-hmm. And so he thought that by allowing them to have a lot of children, like, society as a whole would... Um, progressively move towards like being less intelligent as a whole which is he basically saw the movie idiocracy and thought that it would become a fact i haven't seen the movie i haven't seen the movie movie, okay so okay i wish i could i wish i could understand this reference okay i'm going to explain this reference because it's actually actually a really good reference because the movie is like pro-eugenics in a weird way so the movie is based on like this average person from the present it's transported like i think a thousand years into the future or something and all of humanity has become super stupid because rich people don't have kids and poor people who are stupid have many kids. Mm-hmm. And now stupid genes have become super popular. And now this average Basically, man... Basically, Galton's is the nightmare. Sm- Galton's nightmare. And this average man is now the most intelligent person on, on, the, on the planet, basically. Mm-hmm. And he becomes president and like fixes everything because mm-hmm. he's so smart. Um, it's a pro-Jang's movie for, because, because of that reason. But we can also see that like these anxieties about like, oh, the stupids, they're it's breeding. It's not just him. It's not just him. Yeah. People had it before and people are still kind of having it yeah. because they don't understand that like that's not really how intelligence works yeah. or humans. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> this idea that he promoted, uh, the eugenics, that we can actively change human evolution, that we can direct it, became very very popular very very quickly the- and i i want to say that darwin did not agree no. with his interpretation of uh like the theory of natural selection yeah like um, darwin you know wasn't anti-racist by by that stretch, but he was he was also like pretty s- smart in the idea that like he knew that like that's not that's not how this works but this this idea that kind of born out of darwinism and kind of got maladapted by galton that our genes is what determines our personality and our actions. It's something called genetic determinism. That all other circumstances, like... Don't uh, matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. How your race doesn't matter. Uh, what circumstances you have under your life. Doesn't matter. It's all about the genes. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's called genetic determinism. And it is wrong. <laughs> to, a, to a huge degree. I just want to say that out loud. Genes obviously do affect like who we are as people. But it doesn't affect us that much. We do still live, unfortunately... In a well, no, they they do affect us a lot, but it's not all there is to it. Yeah, but the the idea that anyway, the the point is that the belief that genetics determine wholly a person's behavior is called genetic determinism, and it's wrong. At the same time, though, because as this sort of discussion about like, oh, maybe we can breed humans into becoming better, we also live in a very very racist society. And researching this, I realized it's it's really it's impossible to talk about the history of eugenics while not talking about the history of scientific racism. During this time, the the late 19th century, a lot of scientists and thinkers uh, are doing a lot of science on race. Why? What are the races? Why? How how come Europe has conquered the world? It's not because they are imperialist war machines. It's obviously because, for some reason, these scientists conclude white people are just 
somehow superior to the rest of the world. And these white science, these white European scientists, just happen to come to the conclusion that white Europeans are just somehow better. <laughs> Weird how they came to that conclusion, isn't it? Often rich white Europeans as well. Very like, convenient, also. It's very convenient that I, who do the science, just happen to come up on top. Weird. Uh, and just happens to that all of the people that we enslave across the world are just somehow worse inherently weird. This was often done uh, by scientists and by European powers to sort of excuse their global empires. It's a lot easier to enslave people if you can convince yourself that like this is a correct thing to do. If you can scientifically argue for wrongly, but like if you can pretend to scientifically argue for the superiority of like Europeans over the rest of the world, then it's pretty easy to convince people in Europe that like oh, this is fine, this is a morally okay thing to do. So you may have heard of you may have heard of this that scientists would sort humanity into tiers. People like, uh, for example, Carl Linnaeus from here in Sweden, uh, who you may remember for having invented the system that we classify plants and animals. He also classified people, <laughs> and he did it in the same way too. Um, he sorted various races and described how they act and what they are ruled by. Carl Linnaeus describes the white person as the Europeanus. 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 Okay. Uh, he is white, sanguine, brownie, with abundant long hair, blue eyes, gentle, acute, inventive, covered with clothes vestments, and governed by laws. He also describes uh, Asians. He describes the uh, American Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And he describes uh, people from Africa. You're, you're, are you going to read those? I am not, because yeah. they are all horrific. Yeah, yeah. Um, the his description of white people is like very flattering, covered by laws. Let's just say that the other races, according to Carl Linnaeus, they don't get as much of a flattering description. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So people try to come up with scientific reasons to excuse their racism, with the simultaneous sort of discovery of natural selection is where we get the horrible implementations mm -hmm. of what eugenics actually meant in practice. Mm -hmm. Because during this time, we're getting we're starting to get into like the 1890s, early 1900s. Governments get into this idea. It's not just something that like Francis Galton is writing about to his buddies like in some academy. Uh, they get into the idea that like hey, if we have the best human stock, we'll have the best country. So it becomes something that governments wants to research. Governments would sponsor universities with this, with massive grants of money. Scientists would be given obscene amounts of money to research this, and they would invent all sorts of new like types of science in order to promote this. Like they would start measuring skulls, they would start measuring noses, they would measure each and every like physical difference between various kinds of people. And this happened, uh, as we know, with like things like race biology, like between the different races, like I mentioned. But it also happened between like the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. It happened between very, like, uh, f uh, this, this one example where some eugenicists would do it, like uh, for French-speaking Frenchmen and French-speaking Germans, really? and then German-speaking Germans and German-speaking Frenchmen. Like mm -hmm. they, would, they would do some weird stuff uh, along the border of Germany and France to see who is actually German. 
Mm. Who is actually French? I know that Galton actually, because he was so focused on intelligence as like a, a main trait to select for, I know he tried to develop intelligence tests. And he was yeah. actually one of the first who actually like tried to put that into practice, like intelligence mm. testing. And so he, he tried to do that for, for members of the upper and the lower mm -hmm. class. And he didn't find any differences and he got like mad about it. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> that didn't make him stop and think like, no. hey, maybe... I should rethink my theories. He just yeah. kind of went on to like other tests. Yeah, because I, I think it's important here to note that like a lot of the science done here isn't really to come up with like truth. Mm. It's sort of to excuse the way society is already existing. Like yeah. they, they want to find evidence that like what we're doing already is fine. It's fine that we have rich and poor people because the, the poor people are more stupid. So when they find evidence to the contrary, he's goes like, nah. Can't be right. Can I complain about something really quick? Yeah. When I was reading about like Galton's intelligence tests, it's very rare that you actually see him being mentioned in the context of eugenics. Like people mm. always talk about him as like Sir Francis Galton, mm -hmm. the first, uh, the first scientist who or he studied the intelligence studied, of the mind. <laughs> came up with intelligence testing, mm -hmm. like. Not thinking that the, the reason he's doing this yeah, is to, like... Yeah, isn't that kind of weird? Like, find I, people that exactly. are of lesser stock. Exactly. Like, probably one in five sources I've I've seen where, where they mm -hmm. give some sort of, like, mention of the context. But most times it's just, like... He was a very nice man, very good scientist. Came up with mm -hmm. intelligence testing. Also invented genetics, but don't like to think about that. Yeah. Anyway. It's, it's <laughs> just horror. something I've noticed. It's weird. I feel like this happens a lot of time in, in Also with studies. Linnaeus. Linnaeus, oh my yeah. god. Like, oh my god. When you research Linnaeus, most sources just talk mm. about like, oh, he classified the animals mm -hmm. and he classified mm -hmm. the plants and he was so smart and he educated so many people. Um, he did also like classify the races into various kinds to excuse the existence of uh, like the Swedish East India Company and uh, the one colony we had in the Caribbean. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna drag us back on topic. Sorry, a little bit. That's fine. We love this podcast. We love. We, we, I was about to say we love Carlinius. We don't racist. Mm. Racist old bag spinning in hell. Anyway, sack of shit. So, <laughs> so eugenics becomes popular both in academia as scientists combine this with like their idea of how how the races operate, but it also becomes popular. Yeah, in the government, because they see like economic and political applications with this as well. But there are also like huge social movements that are promoting eugenics. The entire eugenicist movement was a sort of combination of a lot of different scientists, like people like people who were statisticians, they would become eugenicists mm -hmm. because they saw like they would see like poor areas and rich areas and it was like, oh, we can just breed out the poor areas for some reason. So eugenics became this like huge umbrella term to encompass a lot of different ways of guiding humanity. The the idea in the in the movement that that was popular among just normal people was that like this is a way for humanity to guide our own evolution, which today is seen as kind of like completely out there. But and back in the day, it was like we have harnessed genes and we can evolve ourselves. Mm. Up until this point, it's mostly been academic discussions like theories of how to improve humanity hasn't really been that much set in practice just yet uh, it wasn't until the foundation of race biology like i kind of mentioned already as a subsection of eugenics where things become complicated and things get put into practice the first ever institute of, uh, for race biology was founded in sweden 
and more cropped up all over the world in the early 1900s. And the idea was that they would use the science of eugenics to improve the human stock in practice, not just in theory. And this is where we start seeing eugenics becoming a state-sponsored project that, imp that impacts regular human beings, like citizens of countries. And when we talk about the implementation, we need to also talk about the fact that there are two different kinds of eugenics. There is negative eugenics, where you try to breed out negative traits, and there is positive eugenics, where you want to encourage quote-unquote positive traits. Because humanity is so varied, it's kind of hard for governments to promote an ideal. That's harder than promoting a negative one. Negative one is easier to convince people of. For example, in America, that that black people during this time are not seen as e are not seen as equal genetically to white people, and there is an idea that like the, the genes from black people shouldn't infect quote unquote the white population. Mm. Obviously, that's based on like yes, good old fashioned racism, but it is it's coming from a eugenicist standpoint. That like it's not just because they it's not just because white racist white people don't like mixed kids. Is that it? They see it as a genetic infection. They also institute just general segregation. So to keep the 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 quote unquote bad stock away from white people. Again, oh this feels horrifying to say, but like this is the logic that they used. Sterilization was mm -hmm. also something that many governments would would yeah, implement. That was, that was a big and, one. And probably the most common one during this time to to be implemented. Because it was implemented in America, the UK, France, Sweden, Norway, uh, Finland, uh, Spain, France the Netherlands, like a lot of countries, basically. And those who would be sterilized would be people who who were who, who were deemed to be of lesser stock, people who were mentally ill, people who were sometimes just poor, destitute, mm -hmm. people who uh, had committed crimes, mm -hmm. criminals. A lot of criminals were sterilized because they yeah. there was an idea that like criminality was also something that you could be in and could be inheritable. Mm -hmm. homosexuals, homosexuals. in some cases like even promiscuous women promiscuous oh for sure promiscuity mm -hmm. is also genetic like this and this is the danger of genetic determinism because you can take any sort of behavior that is i don't know that reasonable people would classify as like reasonable human behavior but you can, and you can classify it as as a genetic thing that you can affect mm -hmm. and then breed out mm -hmm. and that's where that's where the danger is. so uh that definitely and also just like women who had malformed children for example on one end the children wouldn't even get close to as much medical help as they would need sometimes forced abortions would happen when they found that like a child had some sort of anomaly and then the, then the mother might be sterilized because they the, yeah, the they fear think that was she has that, like, bad genes. The, yeah that she has bad genes and they're like okay we can't have that america does this like very well though like a lot of european countries do this a lot of and uh, a lot of for example native women were mm -hmm. sterilized because the idea with the like native americans are not are not uh, acceptable yeah as a race canada does this as well to first nation people and still does it to some extent. You mentioned LGBT people, of course. But there's a barrier right now between like preventing people from breathing further and outright killing people that you don't like. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you will improve human stock in the long term, like by genetics. You don't actually have to kill anyone to do it. You just need to like uh, snip some snip some balls. But that that barrier is about to be uh, is about to be crossed because in the 1930s, eugenicist ideas are popular all over the western world at this point because they see they see this as a, as a good state project to have and german scientists observe how the american eugenicist project is operating 
at how it's treating, for example, Native Americans, how it's treating uh, its own black population. And they take these ideas and are inspired by them, uh, the worst mood board ever, and apply it to, well, they take it back to Germany. Because in Germany at this time, they also have their own eugenicist ideas. So while in America, they their eugenicist ideas are more directed at uh, people who are black, uh, Native Americans. In Germany, it's, it's focused against probably primarily uh, Jewish people and uh, Romani people. And they turn similar eugenicist ideas from America on its own population. Uh, this is where we get the Nuremberg Laws. Germans are not allowed to marry Jews, but Germany also goes a bit further in their eugenicist ideas because they also promote positive uh, eugenics. They really have this idea of like the ideal human, the Aryan, the Aryan race, which is blue, who is blonde, blue-eyed, uh, pale, uh, and all of these things. So its, it's eugenicist ideas are very similar, like the type of sterilization, segregation, uh, in the 30s, but they also promote Aryan German women to have as many children as possible in order to outbreed, quote-unquote, lesser races. The Nazis also uh, deemed those that, you know, they saw as mentally incurable as being unworthy of life and uh, sterilized them and eventually went to the point of just outright executing them, starting mm -hmm. with the mentally ill. And this idea was sort of like promoted as as a kind thing. They, because like these mentally ill people, they mm. it's not a life worth living. Mm. We're putting them out of their misery, basically. Mm. And both for them, but also for society at large. This was seen yes. as like long-term, the yes. right their thing to do. Their genes cannot infect society. Yeah. Good-hearted Germans will not have to waste their labor supporting the lessers. Yeah, exactly. Um, and all of this was done in order to promote the health of the German people. Like, it's like the the whole human stock of the nation. And we kind of see how this eventually leads Nazi Germany to just take this to its, to its end conclusion, which is to outright mass murder anyone who doesn't fit the, the racial ideal as it goes into a more intensive phase, like in, at the end of the war. Mm. As, and, the, and the reason why, I think, I think this is important too, because... The Nazi German eugenicist project started slow in the 30s and picked up pace over time. But as the Nazi leadership realized that they're going to lose the war, which they realized in around 1943, that's when the Holocaust uh, ramped up its intensity. They were so dedicated to their eugenicist cause that they couldn't, they couldn't wait for sterilization to, to take its course. They couldn't wait for, for segregation and miscegenation laws to, so like work in the long term mm -hmm. which has had been, which had been the plan for many other countries in throughout Europe at this time and that's where the only the only choice they had is mass murder in order to to fulfill this this goal now I'm shifting a little bit from like medical history into general history because it's sort of seen by many historians that Nazi Germany wasted a lot of resources doing this they would have had a better chance at winning the war if they hadn't been so dedicated to their eugenicist project but, and I think that's important to mention because it just shows how intense their belief in eugenics actually was. Hermann Goering, for example, outright claimed that it's fine to lose the war because they did the Holocaust and fulfilled their goal of improving the racial health of Germany. Mm. It doesn't matter that they lost the mm. war. In their, in their minds, they're like winning in the long term. Yeah, they're winning in the long term. Yeah. So, and that's, 
I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting and really horrifying because yeah. it's a it's a view into into the logical endpoint of like a eugenic ideology where you, where you start seeing that if you if you if you take the first steps into thinking that you that you can improve humanity, eventually you start thinking that's your that, like that's your entire moral outlook, which um, you know obviously had led to some of the the worst horrors the humanity has ever seen. Yeah. That's sort of my end to to th- that bit before I go into talking about like the decline of the movement. Afterwards. Yeah, it's kind of a hard hard point to to end on, isn't it? Um, do you know what? So, because because I mean, next we want to talk a bit about the supporters and the yeah. opponents of the movement. Did you know that Churchill was actually a supporter of eugenics? Oh yes, which I, mm. which is ironic because I mean he is known as the man who stood up to Hitler, mm-hmm. but actually he was also a supporter of the the British Eugenic Society, and he actually served as the honorary vice president. And he believed so he he I mean just like other supporters of eugenics, he believed that eugenics could solve race deterioration mm-hmm. and also reduce crime and poverty. Um, in 1910, Churchill warned. The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, constitutes a national and race danger, which is impossible to exaggerate. I feel like the source from which the steam of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before another year has passed. So, oh my god. Yeah, so that's... Not, he's fully arguing he's for basically arguing, what the Nazis did. Exactly. Isn't that... When was this? 1910. So, I mean, it was before, but... Yeah, yeah, but he's basically arguing for, like, Nazi policies 30 years before the Nazis did it. Oh, my God. Then another person, which I didn't know... I I should also say that I'm very proud to be a member of the insane classes. (laughs) Um, Good for you. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. Um, I'm also feeble-minded. I'm not leaving that in, in the podcast, just so you know. The insane classes I wanted to keep, though. Okay. So another person that was a supporter, which I did not know about, was Herbert George Wells, who is best known as the author of The Invisible Man and the War of the Worlds. What did you say his name was? H.G. Wells. Yes, H.G. Wells. Yeah. Um, So he is known as having pacifist and socialist... Uh, principles Mm -hmm. but he was an early supporter of eugenics in 1904 he called for the sterilization of failures (laughs) which is oh god like god like short and to the point like he did not waste time with churchill has like this long thing about like the 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 generation of the races no he's like just sterilize the failures all the failures just sterilize the losers (laughs) very spartan uh, yeah view of it like however however i gotta say that later in his 1940 book, The Rights of Man, he, I mean, he, he switched up a little bit. Mm. So later he, he said that among the human rights, which he believed to be available to all people, was a prohibition of mutilation, sterilization, torture, or any bodily punishment. So, I mean, I guess maybe he was an early supporter and then he kind of, because mm. I mean, it just, 1940, so maybe, you know, he saw, yeah. he saw how it actually looked mm. when it was actually put into practice. And then he, he decided to, to take a step back. Yeah, I feel like it. It might also be possible that he may have kept his original ideas, mm. but just but but also had the idea that like in theory you could do that, but it also valued the idea of like individual rights more. Being like in theory you could, mm-hmm. but like maybe you. Can, but it's it's a more it's a higher moral evil to sterilize people mm-hmm. or to mm-hmm. invade invade their lives. Like even mm. if it would mm-hmm. like improve the human stock, like maybe 
maybe these two ideas exist at the same yeah. time but he probably changed his mind a little bit or maybe but he didn't want maybe he also didn't want to be public about it it's been, yeah during during the war in europe uh, fighting against like the most yeah. eugenicist nation in the history of the world being pro-eugenics is like a bad move bad mm, pr bad look. look yeah but i think it's important that you mentioned that like he also had like he had some lefty views like mm-hmm. there were um today eugenics is very much associated with like far-right movements because of the nazis yeah but there were there were a lot of left-wing eugenicists too because they believe they believe it's for the for the better of everyone yeah for the better of everyone like this yeah. is a they, they saw it as a universal good i mean many socialists saw it as a sort of like they could see that working class people were like more mentally unwell they were more uh they were sicker uh but some but some of them didn't you know blame capital as most like lefties and socialists would they 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 said like well maybe that's part of it but maybe we can also like you know fix the the stock of the working class and then that will assist in the revolution Mm. which is horrifying Mm. but i think that's important to to mention because like it's it it, wasn't just far right yeah like anyone literally anyone like all sorts of people could be and probably at some point was pro Eugenics. eugenics yeah speaking of <laughs> other surprising supporters of eugenics include helen keller <laughs> and theodore roosevelt i'm not surprised by roosevelt but helen keller really yeah so helen keller was in favor of refusing life-saving medical procedures to infants with life-threatening conditions because they thought that they would become criminals and she was also concerned about human overpopulation and that kind of goes i think that that's like her main reason for being in favor of of eugenics Mm. so she um rejected and i quote cowardly sentimentalism which promotes life at any cost and disregards human suffering so helen calder's perspective was that you know it's yeah like it's yeah. not a life worth living like if you're born with defects and that we you know we have to think about overpopulation as a problem that needs solving mm. and you know not not be sentimental about it yeah. that's horrifying cuz i've always like known quote unquote that like helen keller's like Good person, disability rights activist. Very good. It's weird to hear that someone's a disability rights activist mm. and a eugenicist at the same time. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So you know, I'm not an expert on Helen Keller, but I guess I mean, maybe yeah. she she was in favor of um, disability assistance for people that are already born. But mm. um, maybe maybe her perspective was that if you can prevent a person from living that life then you should. Yeah. Just just a wild guess. That is wild. Yeah. Surprising to po- like, But but don't is... quote me on that cuz I don't know. <laughs> I just want We to don't say know that. anything. We don't know much about how in color, but it, yeah. it's it's interesting. It's interesting, sure. Listen, people are complicated. Politics are complicated. Politics you is can have you can have contrasting views. But actually, okay. actually um as as we're recording this part, um just doing some quick research during recording. Uh, we have both discovered a place um, on on eugenics that is pro eugenics today. <laughs> we found a website that has um, that is pro Planned Parenthood from a eugenicist standpoint. Um, so you know, some some could argue that Planned Parenthood family planning is a type of eugenics. I guess at least this side is. God, don't say that. People will take it the wrong way. <laughs> um, anyway. Listen, I also wanted to say to talk about early opposers of eugenics. Yes. Because I think that when we think back in time about like horrifying mm-hmm. social movements, I feel like 
often there's a tendency to say, well, people just didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't have the information to say that this was wrong. Mm-hmm. The science was, it wasn't available to them or mm-hmm. whatever. But actually there was a fair amount of people who knew that eugenics was strong and yeah. they knew it didn't make sense, like even from a scientific standpoint. Mm. Yeah, um, many scientists like weren't in favor. And there were many people who, who, there were many people who also argued that like, even if genetic determinism was a real thing, that still doesn't, that doesn't matter. Yeah, like, they, like they still had problems with how eugenics policies were yeah. were phrased. For example, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, an English writer, philosopher, and literary art critic, is known to have criticized the passing of the Mental Deficiency Act of 1914. So that act would have made provisions for the institutional treatment of people deemed feeble-minded and morally defective. So he criticized the act for being vague, writing that every tramp who is sulk, every laborer who is shy, every rustic who is eccentric can quite easily be brought under such conditions as were designed for homicidal maniacs. So mm. basically he was saying that, listen, you put anybody in that like, con- in, a, in, like a bad the, situation. in a bad situation, in a condition of poverty, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, yeah. how good they are of a person or yeah. what their genes the are. The genetics matter. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's gonna, they're gonna probably... They're gonna happen in similar circumstances. Exactly. That's... Very interesting because uh, yeah, and, like it, people were morally opposed to to this and like saw that there it doesn't really make sense what you're doing here. You're you're painting a broad strokes to just hate on poor people. Yeah, exactly. Because that's that's the thing that he was most opposed to. He this idea that poverty was a result of bad breeding mm. and woke bay. Uh, so he he says I'm I'm sorry I'm reading a lot of quotes, but I, I just think it's kind of um, it's kind of cool. And okay, this quote actually contains a slur, which I'm not going to say, and I will just say the proper word mm-hmm. instead. <laughs> so he's doing well. He's also saying slurs, but I just it's like the, his... It's, it's 1913. I just, I, I, I like the way he says this. Um, so he mocked the idea that poverty was a result of bad breeding, saying, it is a strange new disposition to regard the poor as a race, as if they were a colony of... Japanese and Chinese laborers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The poor are not a race or even a type. It is senseless to talk about breeding them, for they are not a breed. That this makes me wonder if he's like okay with eugenics, if it's about like the races, though. (laughs) Maybe he's not super woke anyway in that case, because like he's basically saying like poor people aren't a race. You can't you can't you can't breed them like a race. But he's also saying like, but then he's also like implying that you can do that with the races. At least he saw the problem with treating like air quotes you, yeah. undesirable traits mm. that are not like related to genetics to, yeah. as, as traits that you can just breed out yeah. which a lot of people i mean I, and again i'm saying this because a lot of people at the time believed this and and I, I just want to make this point that like they clearly had enough information to realize this is stupid yeah this doesn't <laughs> um, make any sense this does not being make... poor is not a genetic disorder <laughs> um interestingly enough among institutions, the Catholic Church was an opponent to yes. side to state enforced sterilizations. Not from from the beginning, though. No, not from the beginning. Not from but the they beginning. Got into it. They um uh, so they did not condemn eugenics entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, some eugenics is okay. Some eugenics is okay. It's the gonna, American that's gonna get clipped and taken out of context. Uh, so they um they did not condemn eugenics entirely from the beginning, and the American Eugenic Society initially did gain some Catholic followers. 
um, support declined after the uh, Pope Pius IX condemned sterilization laws, with the argument that governmental entities have no right to interfere with the bodies of their subjects when no crime has been commi- committed. So their problem mm. mainly laid in... In with the f- individual rights, basically. Well, they, 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 they started from the idea that life is sacred mm. and you cannot... Can't interfere with that. You can't, yeah, you can't, like, kill somebody. Mm. Like, that's not a life that you can take. Mm-hmm. Um, or sterilize. Yeah, because then you interfere with, like, an individual's body and their mm. ability to procreate. I want, but So I, I didn't look into this uh, very deeply, but I wonder what parts of sterilization they were actually okay with. What, well, what, I mean, what parts of eugenics they were actually okay with? I well, mean. I mean, they also talked about, like, in cases of crime. Oh, yeah. So I, I feel like maybe maybe the Catholic Church was, like, fine in cases of crime. Um, hmm. But maybe, maybe. But, 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 like, if you're just an innocent person, mm. the Pope is like, nah, you, you can't do that. They haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, but they did, but but they did think that eugenics as a means of like population management tool in some ways was okay. Mm. Yeah, and that, that that was very common. Like in that that was how many viewed it as like it's a as a as a as a state institution to control the population, mm-hmm. uh, either to make it better, to get rid of bad stock, or to just like have government control over the population in general today like obviously we again we see this is sort of evil don't don't tread on me gene government mm-hmm. uh but you know in those days people thought that it could be the responsibility of the government so even during the height of eugenics before the war people were against it for a variety of grounds like moral scientific religious and the movement of eugenics is mostly gone today. Very few people will call themselves a eugenicist. But why is that? Well, it turns out that when a nation declares war on half of the world and invades and starts committing genocide, as in Nazi Germany, eugenics gets bad PR. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look that great. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the United Nations exists, because the United Nations, if you didn't know, was founded from the the United Nations against the Axis. And they declared that all people are created equal. You can't you can't do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of these like eugenicist policies that had like been kind of default for for a time suddenly became, you know, international, international human crime. rights violations. Yeah. Um and you know, over time, over the decades, like more and more like of these eugenicist laws fall out of favor. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they begin to be removed. They, they pretty slowly though pretty slowly and like it didn't not instantly but over time things like sterilization laws things like yeah. uh segregation things like like miscegenation laws they begin they begin to be phased out because arguing for that for it is almost impossible at this point because mm. any sort of pro eugenic movement is going to be seen as almost like pro-nazi yeah which is but even but even though they're not they're not called eugenics laws anymore there's a fair amount of like government mandated sterilizations that yes. continue well into the 21st century. Oh yes, many of these laws don't get removed until the 70s, but they don't call them eugenics anymore. No, they and, just and come they, under they different don't do, names. They don't do it against the poor, but they still do it against the mentally feeble. Sweden, for example, did it until 1970. 
two, I think. And, I mean, as, as many trans people know, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, that's the one I was going to mention, too. <laughs> like, as, as a trans person, like, many countries still today uh, have remnants of eugenicist laws applied to trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweden didn't get rid of it until 2013. Finland still does it. Jap- Japan still does it. So how does it work, like, for people who don't know? So the way, okay, so so what it works, how it works is that like during the 70s, when many of these eugenicist laws were being removed, trans people were already being sterilized as being, as being mentally feeble. Mm-hmm. So in order to get legal recognition as a trans person, you would be forced to undergo uh, a, a, a castration, like a physical castration. Mm-hmm. So transgender laws in places like Sweden is an mm. example of that. But um, that's not the only one, like the one child policy in China could mm. also technically be an example of eugenics and that was mandated until 2015. Yeah. Uzbekistan is another place where coercive sterilizations and hysterectomies were reported by the UN in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then in the US between the years 2005 to 2013, nearly one third of the 144 California prison inmates who were sterilized did not give lawful consent to the operation. Yeah. So this, I mean, this keeps happening, and yeah. it's you know, it's it's definitely like we we think of eugenics as like a thing of the past mm. that happened in World War Two, and it was awful, mm. but it it, still in, in some ways, it's still around. Yeah, uh, um, there are some places in America uh, where even if it is given freely, like a consensual sterilization, some uh, some places you can reduce your prison sentence if you agree to be sterilized. Mm-hmm. And that is like a leftover from eugenicist laws from like the 10s and 20s, mm-hmm. which does, doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, a, 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 you know, a criminal isn't going to, I don't know, do less crimes because they're sterilized. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the argument. And then the argument obviously is that like them, they can't Bring, have kids yeah, that the- will have the crime gene mm-hmm. in them. I mean, in, in a way, it's also almost like an admission of guilt because they know that ex-convicts ha- find it very difficult to like adapt to society and get their life back together. So they're thinking, well, less children born in poverty means mm. fewer criminals yeah. in the future. Which isn't necessarily like a genetic thing, but it's still eugenicist because you're, you're is, working to... Even though you, you're not changing like the genetic aspect of it, you're, say, you're changing... The, pop, the, the population mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way. But everything that we've mentioned so far goes into the category of like coercive eugenics. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk a bit about eugenics as a non-coercive tool mm-hmm. because you know, society has developed and has advanced technologically mm-hmm. and medically. And there's there, there are some... Uh, <laughs> there's a type of eugenics. There's a type of eugenics which is becoming more popular now. Yes. Which is very controversial. Yes. Um, that I think would be interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's do that a bit later. Firstly, we've been kind of like dunking on eugenics throughout this episode (laughs) and saying that i mean obviously you know it's it's obviously morally wrong Mm -hmm. and um, and incorrect but yeah but that's the thing we've we've been mentioning a lot that it doesn't have a scientific basis Mm. but we haven't really said why Mm. so let me say why so other than the obvious ethical considerations it has been criticized by scientists for a variety of reasons Mm -hmm. including shoddy science so firstly a lot of the traits that have been studied by eugenicists 
have very little genetic basis. Mm -hmm. So among the traits targeted for elimination, there are a lot of complex and quite subjective traits, yeah. like criminality and, and yeah, like feeble-mindedness, which is just an umbrella term for like various degrees of mm. mental and physical and, and learning disabilities. Mm. So the eugenics movement was rooted in this belief that complex human traits are controlled by single genes that mm. can be inherited in a predictable pattern, yeah. just like, you know, Mendel's peas or fly eye color. But that's not true. Like most traits that the people were interested in are actually controlled by the very complex interaction of tens, if not hundreds of genes. Mm. Now, yeah. we, we honestly, are like, complicated. Genetics is very complicated. Like even to this day, we don't really know everything about how um, how some of these disorders work, mm. like from a genetic standpoint. Um, and it's also like an argument between like nature and nurture. Because exactly, the, the eugenicist exactly. argument is like, it's all nature, it's all genetics. Uh, exactly. But obviously even people who have, like, you know, we've seen in twin studies that people who have identical genetic makeups can mm -hmm. have radically different lives depending on how they're raised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So eugen eugenicists... They either were unaware or they chose to ignore how the environment actually affects these traits that mm. they were interested in. I'm going to wager a guess to say that they ignored because mm. it suits the, the, the interests of those in power. Mm -hmm. Another interesting fact about genetics, which they did not consider, is the presence of pleiotropic genes. So a pleiotropic gene is a gene that influences multiple uh, phenotypic traits that are that seemingly are unrelated so for example and phenotypic means external visible exactly mm -hmm. so for example uh, myopia or nearsightedness and higher intelligence are related pleiotropically so a coercive government eugenics program might prohibit people who are nearsighted to have children but by doing that they actually uh, would select against highly intelligent people mm. yeah because I, I you know genes do many things Yes, they do. <laughs> um, the main criticism of eugenics, however, is that artificial selection can cause harmful loss of genetic diversity. And genetic diversity is essential for the survival and the health of a species. Habsburgs, Habsburgs, <laughs> Habsburgs. We, uh, lack of genetic diversity has never uh, caused anything bad, I don't think, ever. Mm -hmm. It's not like we definitely made a podcast of lack see of... See our previous episode. <laughs> yeah. If you want to see eugenics in practice, you can see... If Look at uh, Charles Habsburg, mm -hmm. the the jaw. The, according to eugenicists of the time, must have been the peak human specimen. Mm -hmm. But listen, okay, so just to round it up, so genetic diversity is obtained by the constant reshuffling of inherited characteristics and new mutations, rather than like the concentration of a few allegedly desirable characteristics. Mm. Yeah, because like hypothetically, if if the Nazis had done their entire plan and wiped out most of humanity and all of humanity mm. would, would become Aryans, mm -hmm. and then suddenly a disease comes that only kills Aryans, mm -hmm. humanity doesn't really have like the genetic diversity to protect mm. itself. Mm. Like banana trees have this, for example, where like bananas, are, all banana trees are clones of each other. And they have the exact same genetic makeup, and there's a fungus that is, like, really good at killing that specific genetic makeup. Yeah, so yeah. now, like, banana trees are in crisis because, like, they, they have no genetic protection. Yeah, exactly. So genetic diversity is the key to to maintain a population yeah. because it really there's no there's no real 
fittest individual. Mm. The fittest individual is uh, changes based on the environment. And so the key to a strong population is having a highly diverse genetic makeup mm. so that... So, so that, that the needs of the situation will always be met by at least some members of exactly, the species. Exactly. Which is probably a big reason why Darwin probably disagreed with Galton, right? Because Galton argues Might to be. reduce the, the genetic diversity a little bit yeah I, probably yeah. maybe probably maybe not that sophisticated but like i'm guessing that's probably a part of it because i feel like darwin at least that's like that's a big part of natural selection like yeah, that's, he, that's what evolution like that's sort of a thing that many people discount that like there there's no like path to evolution it just happens to like if, it, if there is a diversity enough then there will always be somebody who is yeah. like the best fit for yes. the current environment and that's how species evolve like mm-hmm. with the with the finches and things like that mm-hmm. um a lot about the finches. I know something. So the last like argument against eugenics is that there's no like, and I mean this goes without saying, but there's no like objective way of determining what traits are ultimately desirable or undesirable. So there's certain conditions like sickle cell disease and cystic fibrosis that confer immunity to malaria and resistance to cholera. So eliminating these genes is undesirable in places where such diseases are common. Mm. So we already mentioned that some eugenics is still around today, but we talked about trans people, for example, being sterilized. We talked about, you know, one child policy only very recently being have been revoked. But how does, how does eugenics, what's, what's the, what's the score? What is the state of eugenics today? So people who are supporters of eugenics don't really like to think of it as eugenics, but there's definitely something that is kind of a modern form of eugenics, otherwise mm. called liberal eugenics. Um, I read about this. Yeah, more more commonly it's known as human genetic engineering. Mm. So basically eugenics has, has gotten a new form with recent advances in genetics mm. and reproductive technology. So you've mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's it's still relevant today. Like human genetic engineering can be divided into two categories mm. and negative engineering, which is basically correction of genetic disorders and deficiencies and positive engineering, which refers to an enhancement mm. of an individual's genetic makeup. Usually the first one is a little bit more, it's more agreed on. The latter is a little bit more controversial. Mm. So some of the practices included in new eugenics are pre-implantation diagnosis and embryo selection, selective breeding, and human enhancement for the use of genetic technologies like embryo engineering or gene therapy. So Or CRISPR. (laughs) Well, CRISPR is one of them. CRISPR is one of them, yes. It's it's a big one. So let's, let's go a bit into more detail into what these different things are. So pre-implantation diagnosis is the genetic profiling of embryos prior to implantation and sometimes even oocytes prior to fertilization. Mm. Pre-implantation diagnosis is used primarily for genetic disease prevention by selecting only those embryos that do not have a known genetic disorder. Mm. It can also be used to increase the chances of a successful pregnancy for sex selection or to match a sibling and HLA type in order to be a donor. So the HLA, um, I'm just going to go over this super quick, the HLA is a cell surface protein which regulates the immune system and only people who have similar HLA complexes are able to receive transplants from from each other. So by selecting for HLA type you can ensure that the sibling that is born would be able to be a donor or receive a transplant from an already existing member of the family. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. So I mean you could technically be having a farm of... Oh god! (laughs) An organ harvesting farm! Yeah. 
Technically. Te- technically. You could technically, but you know someone somewhere is doing this. I don't know. Like, if it's possible, someone somewhere is doing it. But so... In... I'm also thinking, like, with sex selection, though, because, like, that yeah. is something that, like, has... Yeah. Had, yeah. like, real-world consequences, for example, yeah. like, in like in China with the one-child policy. Exactly. Where, like, male children are preferred. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and if you can only have one child, most of them will choose to have mm-hmm. a male child. Yeah. And suddenly, there are whole generations where the... You know, the typical balance is 50-50 or like mm-hmm. 50.1 and 49.9. There's only men. There's no women. And now there's just like an overflow of men. And this yeah. is similar things that are happening in India, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is uh, not great. Yeah. And this is why in uh, some countries, like in Germany, pre-implantation diagnosis is permitted only for preventing stillbirths and genetic diseases. So they don't let you select for for sex mm. using this technology they only like only if, if you can prove that like there's a genetic condition running in your family and like you know you're worried that your kid might have it like that's the only um that's the only reason they would allow you to use this technology yeah i also wanted to talk a bit about how even new eugenics is still like a class issue yes <laughs> because we you know we've been talking about eugenics from the perspective of like how it allowed the wealthy, the white, the traditional, like, ruling class to select for people like them. Yeah. And how this was very much, like, like an act of terrorism against poor people yeah. in some cases. And I wanted to make the argument that this is still happening today. Like, for example, selective breeding in the context of new eugenics, it virtually means lack of access to reproductive technology and also decreased social and legal representation of people who are less white, less wealthy, less traditional, and less able-bodied. Um, there's actually this really good book by Judith Dar called The New Eugenics Selective Breeding in an Era of Reproductive Technology, which goes into detail of how eugenics has far from disappeared and has in fact adapted to medical and technological advances. I'm reminded of how, like, in America, a lot of, when it comes to complications, like, during pregnancy, black women will far more be suggested to go for, like, an, an aborted pregnancy, more than, far more than white people who will often get, like, medical assistance to support the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, That's a good example of it. Which I think, yeah. What, what I was thinking of is how expensive reproductive technology is mm. IVF and pre-implantation diagnosis those things are expensive yeah. like like a normal you know middle class family can hardly afford that yeah so i guess we run the risk of like the rich people sort of breeding themselves into a super super class a little bit yeah i mean we haven't reached like the the topic of like human enhancement yet. but Yet, but the point that I'm making here is that this is a tool that is only available for, yeah, for wealthy rich, yeah. individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a sense, that is also like a, a selection force yeah. for those people. If you want to see this in fiction, watch Gattaca. <laughs> is that wait? Is that the one you mentioned earlier? No, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I mentioned Idiocracy earlier. Oh, okay. Um, What's that? Gattaca is a, a science fiction thing where people are genetically designed from birth, but only rich people. But that means that all like all the good jobs are taken by are taken by like genetically perfect people, and then mm-hmm. everyone else gets to gets to work like janitors or something. And the main character is is a is a person who isn't genetically engineered, but who who like steals the genetic co- identity code 
of someone who is genetically engineered but who has broken his back and is, is disabled and mm -hmm. therefore he can't work either and like he 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 gets a job at at the place and like fulfills his dream of going to space which mm -hmm. is something that like only genetically perfect people are allowed to do mm. um, yeah. there's a lot of like fiction with those themes mm. okay but let's talk about gene editing human enhancement so mm -hmm. so far we've been talking about use of genetic technologies that are meant to reduce suffering you know which a lot of people think that that is acceptable and that is reasonable and justifiable now we're going to get a bit into the side of of genetic technology that is a bit harder to justify and that a lot of people have a problem with and that is gene editing i don't know if you know this but there already are two chinese girls lulu and nana whose genomes have been editing uh, the scientist in charge of the project is a Chinese scientist named He Shangkui. I'm trying to pronounce it correctly. I'm not sure if I did. I hope I did. But so he's a biophysicist who um, who was in charge of this entire project, which they published their paper in 2017. So, you know, it probably happened like sometime uh, leading up to that. So his project consisted of recruiting eight couples consisting of an HIV positive father and an HIV negative mother. And his the, the the goal of the project that he presented to the public was that he wanted to genetically modify a protein called CCR5, which would then confer resistance to HIV infection. So he he recruited these eight couples, he performed in vitro fertilization in order to induce pregnancy. So the sperms were cleansed of HIV. He disabled the gene, implanted the, the embryos. And, uh, but this project has always been a bit controversial because there's a lot of things about gene editing that we don't really know how they would work. Like, for example, a problem is that we don't know whether genetically modifying one gene might cause mutations in other genes. So um, this was brought to the attention of He, and he said that he tested for that and there weren't any issues. Another problem with this project is that CCR5 is actually thought to help people fight off the effects of various other infections, such as the West Nile virus. His research and clinical trials were therefore widely condemned by the scientific community. He was actually brought to court for forging ethical review documents, and also because he, in a way, he coerced his patients to stay in the trial. So he said that um, the costs of the re reproductive technology would be covered by the experiment, but that they would have to repay the costs if they decided to drop out, which Yo. is yeah, which is a form of like financial coercion and yeah. that yeah, so he was brought to court for that. That's messed up. But but listen, there's a a very interesting theory here that is widely circulating. And the theory is that he actually attempted to improve the patient's cognition. So remember the protein, CCR5, and how a lot of people were like, hmm, you know, it's a little weird that you're targeting this protein because it actually confers protection to other infections, so you're putting them at risk. And yeah. he's like, that's fine. No, it's fine. Don't worry. Like, it's just, I really need to do this protein. Guess what? Uh, <laughs> there's, um, there's actually a fair amount of research in mice that shows that the CCR5 gene can actually enhance cognition and memory. And so scientists believe that 
He may have gone after CCR5 in an attempt to improve the baby's cognition. Breeding super smart humans. Yeah, I mean, people people think that he actually... Well, he wanted to experiment. He wanted to experiment, exactly. So obviously he wouldn't have been allowed to perform this research if, if he told people that he actually wants to see if he can enhance the baby's intelligence. Like, the only way he got permission to do this is because he said this would come for resistance to HIV. So to be clear, there is no direct evidence that he set out to boost the baby's intelligence. But there's just a lot of factors that don't like kind of point in the direction of that theory being true a lot of weird uh, a lot exactly a lot of weird coincidences a lot of like questionable decisions on his part so in the end on the 30th of december 2019 he was sentenced to three years in prison and he was fined 430,000 USD for forging ethical review documents and misleading doctors into unknowingly implanting gene-edited embryos into the two women. So no, you mean he tricked like his own staff into doing these things as well? Like he he didn't just trick the patients; like he tricked a lot of people in order to like do this. Yeah, little mad scientist vibes. A little bit, yeah. So he he was fired. He's not allowed to practice anymore. The Chinese government denounced him. <laughs> Um, so it's denounced it's, from the party it's pretty bad yeah but so this is just an example of how easy like genetic editing can can go wrong and how much potential there is for for abuse mm. so that is a small history of eugenics and a little bit about modern genetic manipulation seems to be a lot of uh like danger Mm -hmm. a lot of concern a lot of like i don't know like overconfident doctors thinking that they can a lot of mad scientist vibes here Mm. both in francis galton and it's too much power too much power i guess that despite like any potential or you know any type of like scientific view on it there's no way to do basically any type of genetics like ethically like on a large like societal scale because mm. like that's that's where we get into like all the horrible mm. horrifying like implementations because you know these ideas of like bettering human stock or they're you know they're tainted with like views on racism and classism and ableism like all of these yeah. things sort of infest this view yeah um, genetic technologies are like fascinating like the fact that we're able to do that um i think is so interesting but I just really don't see how we could implement this without causing yeah. a lot of problems. I, I just don't really see how we could make use of it ethically. Um, like, there's just so, so much potential yeah. for, for misuse and abuse. And so much of it is subjective, too, right? Because, mm. like, what, how, how do we define a good trait versus bad trait? Like, mm. that's... Yeah. Even in terms of, like, individual genes, that's, like, impossible. Yeah, and... and, and like and you mentioned, like, many traits aren't even genetically determined. Yeah, and I mean, there's also there's also this argument of like, what gives value to a human life? Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated discussion, and it's it's very much. I think there's a lot of like philosophical conundrums. Conundrums, yeah. exactly. That I don't necessarily feel qualified to go into. No, God, me neither. But and more importantly, maybe maybe the doctors in like geneticists probably aren't qualified to to get into that either. Yeah, but there's like boards of ethical bioethics yeah. that can probably look into that. But then even but that's then, like complicated. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, anyway, that's our episode on eugenics. Mm-hmm. One uh, of the 
worst sciences, maybe, to have evolved. Yeah, I think we can both agree that it um, it led to some horrifying science yeah. or some horrifying history. Mm. And uh, as un- as is unfortunately the case, a lot of medical history is, is pretty scary. Pretty scary. Hopefully, will be you know. Hopefully, other episodes will have a bit more of a cheerful tone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe it for us today. Yeah, talking about eugenics. Once again, my name is Roluca Montano. And my name is Mia Mulder. You can find us on Twitter at LeechFestPod. Yes. And you can uh, find our podcast on Spotify, on Acast now, Mm -hmm. because we've Mm -hmm. changed hosting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there might be a small disruption in distribution, hopefully not. But we're on Acast now. You can find us on LeechFest there. Or any other place where you get your podcasts. Yeah. Or and... on TikTok, because we have Leechfest. <laughs> yeah, we've, um, um, we made a TikTok, and it got a lot of likes. <laughs> we made a TikTok. So now we're going to make TikTok. This is a TikTok podcast now. Medical History TikTok podcast. I feel like, do people like our TikToks more than they like the actual episodes? Should we just, should we even bother making episodes? Or should we they just, just want do TikToks? T- they just want TikToks. Maybe Pod- we'll just do TikToks. Podcasts are a format of the past. <laughs> TikToks is the way of the future. Um, Reject... Reject tradition, embrace, embrace modernity. modernity. Anyway, Return to if, monkey. if you want to support us on Patreon, that would be cool. You can find us at patreon.com slash leechfestpodcast. Mm. Thanks again for listening. Mm. This has been Leechfest Podcast. And we'll see you next time. Next time. It wasn't recording. You're kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs>